0: Good morning, St. Barabbas. Let's hear from God's words together. In the spring, at the time when the king got off war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. Then the man said, Isn't it the Beesheba, the daughter of Eliam, him, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite." Then David sent messenger to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had to purify herself from the uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, "I am pregnant." So David sent his word to Joab, send me Uriah the And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him, Now, Joab was how, how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told, Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Even you just come from a distance. Why you didn't go home? Uriah said to David, The Ark and the Israelites and the Judah are staying in the tents, and my master Job and my lord's men are camping in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem. That day and the next, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him to drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went outside to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Job and sent with Uriah. In it he wrote, "Put Uriah in front of the line, where he fights in the fierce. Then withdraw from him, so he will be struck down and die." So where Joab had the seat under siege, he put Uriah at the place, where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the siege came and out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's armies fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish, when you have finished giving the king. His account of the battle. The king's anger may flew up and he, he may ask you, Why did you get up to close the seat to fight? Didn't you know the wood should shut from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerab the Didn't a woman from throw an upper new stone on him from the wall so that he died in the temple? Why did you go out so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Also your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dying. The messenger set out, and when he arrived to the told David everything, Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the seat gate. Then the archers shoot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Eternite is dead. David told the messenger, Say to Joab, Don't let your heart upset you, the twelve delvers, one as well as another. Pray and attack the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Joab Uriah's wife heard that her husband has died, she mourned for her, for him. After the time of mourning over was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done didn't please the Lord. May God bless the reading of His word.
1: Good morning, everybody. Well, by a happy coincidence, uh, this term we've been following the life of David and 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, at the same time that the students have been doing the professor's course on the former prophets. And uh, with the exams just around the corner, you might like to sharpen your pencils
0: as
1: we, <laughs> as we text this morning. Please will you keep your Bible open at 2 Samuel chapter 11, and I will pray. (coughs) Almighty God, we do thank you for the awesome privilege of an open Bible. There are so many words out there in the world bringing us conflicting messages. So we pray that in the next few minutes that your word... Would be our rule and guide, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and your glory, our supreme concern. And we ask these things for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Well, some of you will remember that uh, Bill Clinton was President of the United States between 1993 and 2001 and he he led the country through the longest period of economic growth in American history. Uh, He was massively popular, and when he left office he had the highest approval rating of any U.S. president since 1945. But his presidency was overshadowed by a series of sex scandals, Several women publicly accused him of sexual misconduct, most famously um, a 22-year-old White House employee named Monica Lewinsky. At the time, all of it seemed very sensational. Uh, The newspapers loved it, and yet, shortly afterwards, a survey of journalists ranked his affair with Monica Lewinsky as only the 53rd most sensational story of the 20th century. When he heard about the survey, President Clinton made the rather revealing, and I think perhaps rather foolish, comment. Uh, What does a guy have to do to get into the top 50? That survey, I think, reminds us that our world has become accustomed to moral failure amongst those in power. The the indiscretions of the rich and famous have almost really become a cliché, haven't they? They no longer have the, the shock factor that they had a generation or so ago. But with King David we still feel uncomfortable when we read 2 Samuel 11. For one thing, probably the most important fact we've learned about David is that David is the Lord's anointed. The Lord has made an everlasting covenant with David that affects the whole human race. So if David can behave like this, breaking at least three of the Ten Commandments in the space of just a handful of verses, is the covenant secure? Can we be sure that God will stand by his promise of an everlasting kingdom? We'll say more about that later and next week. But David's moral failure gets to us personally in a way that the failure of Bill Clinton and other world leaders doesn't. And it makes us uncomfortable. Partly, I think, because David is one of the Bible's heroes. Uh, David's been walking with God for a very long time. We have known him to be a godly man. He wasn't just a terrific warrior on the battlefield, he was a prayer warrior as well. In fact, because he wrote so many of the Psalms, the people of God have been praying the prayers of David for 3,000 years. And yet now, in our passage, at around 50 years of age, having been close to the Lord for more than 30 years, we see David caught in this massive moral failure. So there is a sense, I think, in which we don't actually really want to read chapter 11, we want to skip on to maybe chapter 12 or chapter 13. It seems to be so very discouraging. And yet, the Apostle Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the men and women of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work all scripture, including 2 Samuel 11. So, what is this chapter teaching us this morning? How can you and I be trained in righteousness by it? Well, I want to suggest that there are three very up-to-date lessons about moral failure for us to learn. First, moral failure never happens suddenly. Uh, We might like to think it just happened in the heat of the moment, that there was no real way of predicting it. That is naive. We can learn from David that moral failure never happens suddenly. Second, moral failure comes from a distorted view of reality. You see, all of us view the world around us through a lens, whether we realise it or not. And the particular lens we might be wearing is trying to persuade us all the time what's real and what's not, what matters and what doesn't. And moral failure comes from seeing the world through a defective lens. A lens that distorts reality. And then the third lesson we learn from David is that moral failure is the time for confession and not cover-up. Like Adam and Eve, our natural instinct is always to cover-up, isn't it? To cover-up our failures, our mess-up, our sin. But a cover-up only makes things worse. We see that in David's life there's a better way to deal with moral failure. So let's consider these three things as we find them in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Number one, moral failure never happens suddenly. Now it would of course be convenient to say that David's failure was impulsive, Um, a moment of madness that kind of overcame him when he saw Bathsheba bathing. But my dear friends, the text won't allow us to do that. There are at least two signs that point to a gradual but very definite drift in David's spiritual condition. Firstly, David had developed a casual attitude to God's word. Now, the context here is that once he'd been anointed king over Israel, we're told back in chapter 5 and verse 13, you don't need to look at it, that David had taken multiple concubines and wives. That was pretty standard procedure in the ancient world. But the king of Israel was expected to be different so keep a finger please into Samuel page back to Deuteronomy 17 Deuteronomy chapter 17 Now here in this chapter the Lord lays down his instructions concerning Israel's king Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse fourteen. This is the Lord's word. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and you've taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say Let us take a king over us, excuse me, like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint the king the Lord your God chooses now glance down to verse seventeen verse 17, he must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. Had David read Deuteronomy? Well, of course he had. We're talking about the guy who read the Psalms. He was constantly celebrating the privilege of having access to God's word. But in this particular area, David chose to ignore it. No doubt there were some very good political reasons for having multiple wives. Uh, Perhaps it was a great way to show favour to all the tribes of Israel. David might have thought it was a brilliant way to hold the nation together. God said, don't do it. David thought he knew better and his heart was led astray. And I think the warning for you and me is clear, isn't it? If a man as godly as David could not take liberties with the word of God, without becoming spiritually vulnerable, then neither can we. Secondly, the text says that not only has David become casual in his attitude to God's word, but he's also become careless about his duty to God. Look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. Verse 1 says, David's failure occurred during the spring, now notice the next phrase, when kings go off to war. And that verse ends very pointedly, doesn't it, with the words, but David remained in Jerusalem now earlier in the book uh, we're told that the king's duty was to was to go out and fight against the enemies of the people of God and until now david's been brilliant at that it's starting obviously with his famous victory over goliath and the philistines but here for the first time david is not being faithful with the entrustment God has given to him. And I think the point for us is that we are much less likely to be caught up in moral failure if we're faithfully getting on with doing the things that God has called us to do. Now, of course, David's wars are not our wars. As far as I'm aware, we've not been called to go and fight the Ammonites. The enemies that you and I face are different, but they are just as real. Because you and I are called to fight the fight of faith. That is the sacred entrustment God has given to every Christian. And the New Testament explains that our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you see, if we're going to fight against those things successfully, that means walking with God day by day. Can I suggest three disciplines we all need to employ? First, it means, I think, a daily discipline of Bible reading and prayer. And I say that because I think if David were here with us this morning, I think he would say... My moral failure began with a casual attitude to the word of God. So please don't make the same mistake. So a daily time of listening to God and asking him to help us live lives that are pleasing to him, that is our first duty. Second, it means meeting with other believers to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. You see, we can't fight the good fight on our own. We just can't do that. You are God's gift to each other. You are God's gift to me. God says we need each other. And that's why in our church covenant, we promise to one another that we will not neglect meeting together. And the third thing it means, I think, is telling other people about Jesus. It means obeying the commission Jesus has given to every Christian to make disciples of all nations. Now I think if we're faithfully getting on with those three things, we are far less vulnerable to the spiritual drift that is everywhere in the church today. Because moral failure, my dear friends, never, never happens suddenly. Secondly, moral failure comes from a distorted view of reality. Isn't it interesting that in 2 Samuel chapter 11, the Lord is not even mentioned? until the very last sentence. Did you notice that as the passage was being read? You students can put this into your exam. The writer's telling us at this point in David's life that God has become unreal to him. Now, that is a shock. That is a shock if you're reading the Bible carefully. Because we've got used to David being in constant dialogue with the Lord. I mean, before David does anything, he turns to the Lord in prayer. And we've also seen this tremendous humility in David coming from a recognition that the Lord is in control of his life. And if you were with us last week, you'll remember we saw something of that, didn't we, in David's prayer responding to the covenant of grace that God had given him. He prayed, Who am I, Lord? What is my family? that you've brought me this far. Great humility. But notice this. Here, we have a prolonged period of at least nine months from his night of passion with Bathsheba until after the birth of the child, where God was very unreal to David. There was no prayer, no prophet in David's life, or 9 months two comments first first a comment about how that happened you see we notice i think that David's failure <coughs> comes at the very peak of his success and i think that's a tremendous reminder to us that we are often at our most vulnerable spiritually during seasons of success Hard times might not be very much fun, of course not, but they do make us cling to God. We're much more likely to be spiritually fed in the hard times than in the successful times. Too much success is not good for us because we are frail creatures. And in those moments we so easily fall into the trap of believing we don't actually need God anymore, it's all going so well. Surely that is part of what the Lord Jesus meant when he said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, David's failure takes place when David is riding the crest of the wave, he's become the undisputed king of Israel. His enemies have been defeated. The ark has come up to Jerusalem and he has received that amazing covenant of grace from God that we looked at last week. But, you see, instead of thankfulness to God and a humble exercise of his power in the service of the people, David abuses his power for personal gratification with catastrophic results for the very people he's called to serve. I think there's a little clue in the passage that helps us here. Notice that eight times in the chapter we're told that David sends other people to do things, either to gratify his lust or to help him in the CD cover-up operation. I'll point out a few of them. Verse 3, When David sees Bathsheba bathing, he sent someone to find out about her. Verse 4 David sent messengers to get her. Verse 6 David sent this word to Joab. And most egregious of all, verse 14 David sends Uriah back to the front carrying his own death warrant. You see, he had lost touch with reality, hadn't he? Second, I want us to notice that David's lust made him spiritually blind. When David saw Bathsheba bathing, verse 3, David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife? of Uriah the Hittite. Now there is a massive red flag right there. Bathsheba was someone's wife. She was married. And in scripture, the essence of marriage is a covenant. It's a public promise, isn't it, between a man and a woman to each other, permanently and exclusively to death. And sexual intercourse is limited to and reserved exclusively for the marriage relationship. I might get locked up for preaching that, but that's what the Bible says. It's what the Bible means in Genesis 2 when it says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh, one person. If anyone in the Bible should know about covenants, it's David. We saw that last week. But when David is told that Bathsheba is Uriah's wife, that she's in a covenant relationship with someone else, well that piece of information simply bounces off him. His lusts has made him spiritually blind. That is what lust does. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in Germany in the Second World War and uh, in 1945, just a few weeks before the end of the war, he was martyred for his faith. But his insights on the Christian life are so dazzlingly fresh they might have been written this week. And in a very famous essay called Temptation, he describes, I think, with penetrating clarity, the spiritual effect that lust has on men and women. And there it is on the screen. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. At the moment lust grips us, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. Satan, yes he's in it too Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God but with forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in deepest darkness. The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. And it is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Do you see the subtlety of that? See, the devil doesn't use lust to make us turn away from the Lord, no. Because if he did that, we might actually notice.
0: We might come to our senses.
1: No, the devil's far more crafty than that. He simply, simply makes us forget him. So moral failure comes from a distorted view of reality. And then thirdly, moral failure is the time for confession, not cover-up. Now although David had forgotten about the Lord at this time in his life, we should not think for one moment that the Lord had forgotten about David. I think it's very interesting that throughout this long period of nine months or maybe longer when David had been spiritually
0: drifting
1: further and further and further away from God, the Lord was silent. I find that a rather uncomfortable thought. I would prefer to think that if I were to be wandering off course, that the Lord would step in and pull me back. But you see, very often that is not the Lord's way. In the first chapter of the letter to the Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says, doesn't he, that when people don't take God seriously and when they start behaving as they please, rather than reaching out to stop them, the Lord steps back. He says, Well, you know, okay, if that's the way you want to live, you'd better get on with it. In other words, God allows men and women to experience the consequences of disobedience. And of course, it's the same here, isn't it? In 2 Samuel 11. But, friends, the Lord's silence doesn't mean he doesn't have an opinion quite the reverse. The last words in chapter 11 are the turning point in David's life because we're told there that the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Such a simple sentence isn't it? But from that moment on everything changes because the thing David had done displeased the Lord, David's life was never the same again. But, at this point, David still seems to think that he's in control, so when he hears that Bathsheba is pregnant, instead of confessing his sin, asking the Lord for forgiveness, he he launches a rather sleazy cover-up campaign to try and rescue his own reputation. But instead of making things better, The cover up just makes things infinitely worse. And while David exercises all his skill and ingenuity to try and control the outcome, everything he does simply takes him deeper and deeper into sin. I think it's particularly interesting. I wonder whether you notice it's a lovely contrast in the chapter. But just notice that the extent of David's depravity is highlighted, I think, by by contrast with the righteousness of Bathsheba's husband Uriah. It's rather fascinating. We're told plainly that Uriah was a Hittite. What does that mean? It means that he had a pagan ancestry. He had none of the spiritual advantages that David had Both David and Uriah knew that during a military campaign soldiers were expected to abstain from sexual relations and that abstinence was a spiritual discipline. It was an act of consecration to the Lord and you can find an example of that later in 1 Samuel 21 verse 5. But while David is plotting and scheming to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, just look again with me at Uriah's response in verse 11. He says, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do it. What he's saying, basically, is I'm absolutely committed to being faithful to my consecration. And Uriah, you see, he wasn't just a man of pious words. He wasn't just in church on Sunday, uh, behaving like a Christian, looking like a Christian, and living differently during the week. No, he wasn't. He backed up his words with action. Because, first, he avoided the temptation by not even going home, You know, sat in the text? Two nights running, he slept at the entrance to the palace. So he didn't put himself in a situation where he knew he might be tempted to sexual impurity. And then secondly, he made himself accountable. He slept among the servants of the palace. They could see him. So even on the second night when David got him drunk, He knew that if he was overtaken by lust and he wanted to sort of sneak off and go and see Bathsheba, the servants would notice. They'd see him. He wanted to be accountable. He wanted to be faithful to his consecration to the Lord and he took action to make sure that he was. Now friends, there is so much wisdom in Uriah's conduct here. Because these are strategies you and I can use in our own lives to keep ourselves sexually pure. We can avoid places and situations where we know we might be tempted. And we can find someone that we trust and we can hold ourselves accountable to them. Gillian and I have a Christian friend in London who used to travel all over the world on business. He was a hugely successful and very rich businessman. Sexual temptation was everywhere. But before every trip, he would leave his itinerary with his prayer partners at church, with all of his phone numbers, and he would say to them, before he left, you can ring me at any hour of the day or night, and you can say, What are you doing now? That kept him safe. But, but, in the end, rules are not enough, are they? See, rules like these are only going to help us if we're actually holding on to a promise that offers greater fulfilment and more lasting pleasure than sex. I've referenced John Piper's book, Battling Unbelief, before, and I mention it again now, because in it, he talks about a pastor who'd been in bondage to pornography for many years. But he learned that, that his, his, his guilt and, and a sort of rules-based approach to the problem didn't work. It never set him free from what for him was an addiction. And then one day he was meditating on the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And uh, the pastor describes in his own words what happened. Quote, The thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbour lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love that God offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed so that we can contain it. End quote. What is that love? What is it? Where do we go to find it? Well, as I was preparing this talk, there is one verse in the New Testament that really me between the eyes. I'd like you, please, as we close, to turn to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 6. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 6. Now, I think most of you know that Matthew begins his Gospel with the record of the human ancestry of Jesus And he traces it as far back as Abraham to show that God's promise of bringing blessing to the whole world through Abraham was fulfilled in Jesus. Look with me please at verse 6. David was the father of Solomon whose mother had been Uriah's wife. It's only a little detail, but won't you notice that Matthew doesn't say Bathsheba? He says that the line of promise that leads to salvation for the whole world comes through David's messy relationship with Uriah's wife. Matthew wants us to see it that way. And it means, I think, that God's promise to make you and me members of his family, to wash us clean, to make us new, it comes in spite of our human failure. And it means, I think, that the promise of superior pleasure and fulfilment in knowing God as our Father, not just in this life, but for all eternity, is a promise that is there for us, it's available to us, And all that God requires is that we confess our sin and surrender our lives to Jesus. We have to stop pretending we're okay when we're not. Do you see the love of God in that? Maybe there's someone here this morning in bondage to sexual sin. Wondering if they can ever ever break free, perhaps feeling God might never forgive them. Well, verse 6 is a verse for you. Ask God to show you the promise of eternal happiness, superior happiness, superior fulfilment that he gives to all who confess their sin and surrender their lives to Jesus. Jesus and ask him to set you free. Well, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we... We acknowledge that you are perfectly holy and that it is your purpose that we should be holy even as Jesus is holy. We ask that you would make us vigilant against moral failure in our lives. We ask that you would reach out to anyone here this morning who is caught in sin and who is blind to the consequences. Open their eyes, we pray, and grant to them such an overwhelming vision of the lasting happiness that can only be found in Jesus, that they might be set free from their bondage and never taken captive again. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen.